she's an event tactician, using her playbook to land Indiana on the biggest stages in all of sport. It had been a dream building for years to make our state capital a sports capital of the country. And with Super Bowl 46 in Indianapolis in 2012, we were center stage. Super Bowl, check. NBA All-Star Game, check. I think we'll be the, the center of the basketball world, you know, starting with the NBA All-Star Game in February. I think Indiana already is. But, uh, well, we, we have but to it's, it's the heartland in terms of basketball, and I know nobody embodies it more than Larry Bird himself. So. Oh, this is going to be special. We know how full of party the NBA has been around. We haven't had it since 85, and we look forward to getting back in the mix and having the All-Star Game, not only for our fans, but for our state. That was Hoosier basketball legend Larry Bird after he drove an Indy car down the streets of the Big Apple to deliver Indy's bid to host the NBA All-Star Game, a proposal that had Mel Rain's talents stamped all over it. She's Indiana's point guard for scoring the biggest events in sports. Growing up in South Bend, her career in politics, how she got into sports, and what drives her to keep Indiana in the spotlight. Mel Rain's my guest this week, on the Business and Beyond podcast. Hello and welcome to the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. I'm Gary Deck. Mel Raines has had a passion for sports since her days at Mishawaka Marion High School. Never met one she didn't like. Soccer, tennis, basketball. Perhaps it was her destiny to wind up becoming a key driver to bring big sporting events to Indianapolis. Mel's resume also includes a few years in the White House and the past few years overseeing another house, the massive renovation of Gainbridge Fieldhouse. And I am uh, really pleased to be joined on the podcast this week by Mel Raines, the president and chief operating officer of Pacers Sports and Entertainment. And Mel, you know, many of the guests on this podcast are extremely busy people. I don't think anyone can be more busy than you typically are. And certainly you've been recently. Uh, Welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me on, Gary. Happy to be here. Yeah, I want to talk about what you just uh, wrapped up uh, with this uh, dramatic makeover of Gamebridge Fieldhouse. Talking about being busy, you literally just stepped out of the meeting with the NBA, right? The NBA's in town. Massive planning effort underway for All-Star Weekend next year. Yeah, we've got a huge group here, actually several different groups here from the NBA this weekend. It's exciting there and it couldn't be a nicer day. I told them it'll be just like this in February, I'm sure. Um, We've got groups from their community engagement. So looking at some of their legacy and community events that will take place over that weekend and then also their corporate sponsors. And so that's a big one of the the big things why we do these are the economic impact. And so uh, we presented this morning to Rick Fusen did to about, uh, I think, 80 corporate sponsors that are in town for the first time. And interestingly, many of them have been here before for other events, but the first time for this all-star planning session, and they're out looking at um, venues and locations all over town and, and Lucas Oil Stadium and Gamebridge Fieldhouse and Bicentennial Unity Plaza. So it's exciting to see people here and they're excited to get their planning going. So the the corporate presence, these are these are representatives uh, from the corporate world who'll be part of the uh, All-Star weekend coming in to kind of scope out places to do parties and those types of things. 
Yeah, they're they're activations with fans and it's the the biggest sponsors of the NBA. So everyone from Pepsi and Tiso who does the shot clocks to Google's here and a lot of the other big companies and they uh, this is a great opportunity for them to meet the the biggest and best fans in of basketball in the world who come into town for this. So we've been to probably eight of the NBA All-Star games over the last few years and some of the more fun activations are what these creative companies come up with to interact with the the fans in town. And this is, there's so much impact that comes out of this event. Uh, I guess if, if you think about it, exposing Indianapolis to these uh, corporate uh, executives is a good thing. They get to see Indianapolis and see the city and the state and, uh, you know, walk away, hopefully with a good impression, right? Absolutely. Chris Gall was there with us from Visit Indy this morning. He opened the session with Rick and talked about how we, you know, we've been rated the number one convention city in the country. And they do this kind of thing all the time, all over the world, really. And so having those kinds of decision makers checking out our city and looking at it for the first time, maybe in a different way is a great thing. So we've got the perfect combination of people coming here to do business and then our businesses and the people who have contributed to the host committee being able to host people to come in to see how we do a weekend like this. And so there's a really big business presence at this. Can you put in perspective for people the planning process, how significant it is, how how all-encompassing it is, what a big task it is? But put it in perspective for folks who may, you know, they see the finished product, they see the All-Star Weekend, but they have no idea what has gone on and what will go on between now and next February. The details can be a little bit overwhelming, to be honest. I've never worked on an event that this started in 2017 with Larry Bird driving the IndyCar down Fifth Avenue in New York to deliver the bid. And then obviously the event being pushed from 21 to 24. So we've had a board of directors. We've we found a, a host, a nonprofit 501c6 host committee. We have a board of directors of a little over 50 people of our community leaders um, that have been helping us guide this since 2018. And then we have uh, 24 planning committees. That's coincidental, not because of 2024, but 24 planning committees with over 400 community volunteers helping lead everything from sustainability to transportation and parking, host committee events, how we're going to dress up downtown Indy. Uh, it's really, it's really incredible, and this is the model we've used. Um, I inherited when I came to work on the Super Bowl, but certainly had been used for many events before March Madness and college football. That was so successful in '22, and so we're we're certainly stealing a playbook that works well, and then customizing it for this particular event, and then. The Pacer Sports Entertainment is certainly incredibly involved. We have most of our employees playing a role in some way, many of them on these committees, and then others who will be volunteers that weekend. You are just coming off a massive effort, a makeover, a literally the second largest makeover in uh, NBA history, only behind Madison Square Garden of Gamebridge Fieldhouse, inside and outside uh, the Fieldhouse. You and an all-female team, right? Three uh, female executives of Pacer Sports and Entertainment led this effort. I've been there. I've seen it. The reaction I've got from other people, all the same. Uh, it's, it's It's been pretty incredible. Talk about that experience, because again, in terms of all-encompassing, probably overwhelming many times, how big an effort that was. It was a really big effort and took a long time. I mean, I think people have come back into the building and and some people may have thought we used covid 
um, and some of the shutdowns to to think about doing that and to do it. And the reality is we started planning that, master planning that in 2016, worked on the plans in 2017 and 2018, worked with um, the CIB and Melina Kennedy and Mayor Hogsett and their team, you know, throughout 2018. And then in early 2019, signed the 25-year lease extension that Herb Simon and the Simon family very much wanted to ensure the team would stay here for, you know, 25 more years and hopefully forever. I think that's everyone's intent. And then the the planning, the construction documents took all of 2019. The bids went out that fall and work was scheduled to always begin in March of 2020. But I had never managed a construction project of this. Uh, I, I had managed a kitchen renovation that was about $30,000 once, and now I've got about <laughs> $400 million under my belt. So um, looking back at the number of years we put into it, really, like most things, if you put it, the time in on the front end, then it executes a little bit better. But the bumps that COVID caused and supply chain issues and other things we never could have anticipated, I'm incredibly proud of our team here um, who worked with the construction folks on a daily basis to close this building and reopen it three times, which is not easy to do. And then the team from Shield Sexton, who led the construction management, you know, Mike Diltz and Matt Barnes and um, Tony Eisenhut, who lived in this building for you know a long, long time, and just through force of will, got this thing done. It was just an incredible amount of work to do in such short spurts. And all of our subcontractors and partners and and populace architects, like that kind of team effort, was just something I, I rarely am a part of at that scale, and was just. Um, we lost a lot of sleep. I got a lot more gray hair, but it's nice to hear that you, you know, your review of it and a lot of the fans and guests that have been back really love it. And we take such pride in this building. It's the best building in the NBA to watch a basketball game. It's the best building in the world to watch a basketball game. Um, and tonight we, you know, we'll have Dave Chappelle and we've got the Eagles coming and Aerosmith and all these other amazing things that are really important for our city. It's it's important for us to be able to have that to attract and retain businesses and talent and young people and people want to stay and live here when we have this vibrant city with all these things going on. You know, your goal, I know, was to make this a state-of-the-art arena, uh, brand new in many respects, but yet not lose that historic feel that the Fieldhouse certainly has had all those years. That's probably a pretty tough thing to do. I mean, it probably would have been a lot easier to just get the inside and, and redo it and go from there. How, how challenging was it to to really strike that strike that balance? It was pretty challenging because it's easier. It would be have been easier to your point to rip it all out and make it look brand new, but that's never what we wanted to do. We always wanted to keep the soul of the field house, that spirit that everybody loved. And we spent a lot of time at Wrigley. Wrigley had done a big renovation just as we were starting. And they managed to thread that needle well. Um, Fenway, I've been to, they've threaded that needle well. And so when we would look at things, it was really the small details that made a difference. When you looked at what the architects would propose, sometimes it just didn't feel right. It didn't look like our building. It didn't look like what we want, the direction we wanted to go. Sometimes it was as simple as adding brick to it to a concourse or an area that made it, you know, keep that. They they, they certainly didn't propose a lot of things we didn't like. But there were some things where we decided to keep the existing structure, the ceilings on the main concourse, for instance. We we kept these sort of metal clouds there, but we added some LED lighting to the edges. And now when you come in on a Pacers game, they're blue. And at a Fever game, they're red. And if you're doing an event here 
um, and your company color is purple, we can do that too. It's the exact same thing we had before with a little bit of lighting. And so, you know, take that times a thousand details. And that's what we tried to do. But I certainly lost a lot of sleep the night before we opened the doors for the first time after phase one and people walked in and I thought, I hope they like what we did because it's hard to go back now. Yeah. Or, you know, the cake is pretty well baked and we've got to keep going. Yeah. The other element uh, that I think is is, is very important and, and really special about it is Bicentennial Unity Plaza, which is outside Gainbridge Fieldhouse basketball court that can be transported and will be trans uh, transitioned into a, a skating rink bigger than the one in Rockefeller Center in New York City. Talk about the plaza as it connects to the rest of downtown, because I know that's another that's another real focus of really wanting to be part of, uh, you know, another renaissance, if you will, of downtown Indianapolis, especially the Near East Side. Absolutely. One of the biggest ideas that came out of that master planning process was growing our extending our campus a little bit. And just based on where we sit, we can't do that to the south because CSX is running trains there all day. And Pennsylvania and Delaware are to the east and west. And so really looking to the north and what we could do. And as soon as that parking garage came down in March, April of 21, I just looked at our orientation to the city. We just became a different thing. We used to sort of block, I would say, the east to the north side of downtown. It was hard to navigate around the building with with what we had around here. And especially with what the city has planned on Market Street and that east side and some of the gold building development and all the other things that are being announced, we really now sort of that plaza connects the east side of downtown all the way through to Lucas Oil Stadium. We saw it for the first time on Colts opening day on Sunday. We had a lot of foot traffic through there. People, you know, park all over town and tailgate and walk to the stadium. And that's the first time we were open for business that they had a game. And it was really fun to see just how people are using it and how we're just open up. We see Eva Core from the building now. We have a great view of her, which we all find really inspirational. So it's just, it's nice to see as people discover it, stumble across it for the first time and discover it. Is this a bit of a tipping point? I mean, I, I can point back on the 40 years or so I've been in Indianapolis at several momentous times that uh, for downtown Indianapolis, things that help to continue to change the vibe and, and add to the vibrancy and those types of things. But as you look at what's happening at the field house, and then I think uh, there's something like $2 billion worth of projects either underway or on the drawing board in downtown Indianapolis. Do you sense this is maybe another one of those times for downtown Indianapolis uh, to take that next big leap? I certainly feel that way. And I will tell you, I was with Jim Morris recently, our vice chairman, many people know, and who's got, I think, a, a long picture into the past of how we got to where we are today. And I've heard him say several times recently, he thinks the next five years mm-hmm. of our history are going to be some of the most exciting in terms of changing what we look like and what we're able to do as a city. And so to hear him say that, that is pretty impactful. Certainly one of the things that uh, uh, helped change Indianapolis, uh, certainly in a positive way, the 2012 Super Bowl doesn't uh, believe that uh, <laughs> seem like it's been over a decade, but you were very instrumental in the leadership uh, of the local organizing committee in, in really putting on one of the most well-run Super Bowls ever here in Indianapolis. What was that experience uh, like as you reflect back on it? It was a great experience in so many ways. I had moved back to Indianapolis, to Indiana, my home state, after being gone for almost 20 years to work on it. And 
to just be able to meet, reconnect immediately with so many of the key leaders in town at the corporate and the nonprofit level, because everyone was all in on making that a success. So it was nice to immediately reconnect. And then just, you know, there are so many things that happened that (laughs) made that successful from the weather to the people, (laughs) you know, of people in our community, the volunteers and, and everyone who pitched in. I've just worked, I've worked on six Republican national conventions in other cities in America, and no one does it even close to the way everybody here comes together to make these things work so well. And I think you can make your own luck to some degree. And so um, God helped us with the weather. But most of that was just simple hard work and collaboration and everybody rowing in the right direction and wanting it to be successful. And when I see people from the NFL, they will to a person still say that was the best Super Bowl they've ever worked or been to, which is which is great because it has been a long time. What What is it about Indianapolis? I know you probably get asked this a lot. It makes things happen like that. So we not only host the Super Bowl, but we do it in a way that is people stand up and take notice, do things like Super Bowl Village, which hadn't been done before. And, and there's always something that makes it special. What What is it? You know, I think we care about it a lot more. I mean, we don't rest on our laurels. We we're we're always working on the next bid, whether that's for Big Ten football or basketball or Olympic swimming or thinking of the next. That's a great example. You know, putting a swimming pool in a football stadium. Not many people have thought to do that, um, but we did and and pitched it. And I had nothing to do with that in full disclosure, but I'm really proud that they thought of it and help. And we want to be helpful where we can. And so, I think in a lot of cities. We were talking about this this morning, actually, when we were walking down to meet with the NBA folks, the fact that when we are doing something in the city and IMS always comes in and um, the Colts and the Pacers and the Indians and everybody wants to do the right thing because it's helpful to it's additive to us. And when I've been to some of these other cities for sporting events and it's I'm not going to name any cities, but if it's a city that also has an NFL team and also has maybe motorsports or something else, when it's the NBA All-Star Game, you don't see anything from those other entities. And that won't be the case when you are in Indianapolis. We certainly have the the Colts are our donors as we were to the host committee. And IMS has been as a donor and is incredibly helpful. I mean, Indy cars are part of what we're known for. We don't run away from that. And I, I just think there's so everybody is just frankly in it for the right reason. And part of that is we don't have the ocean and we don't have the mountains and those things. So we've got to, we're, we've got to be better than everybody else, but it's also because we take pride in being better than everybody else. And some cities dial it in and we just don't do that. Yeah. Okay. Do you think, and this is just Mel, Mel Rain's opinion. uh, Do you think Indy will go after another Super Bowl? Gosh, I mean, I think we probably will. I, I think the NFL mm-hmm. would be receptive to that. Lucas Oil Stadium is a fantastic venue, and we're and the Colts are a model franchise, and so and, and I people should know it, it's not it's not an easy thing even to just bid. I mean, it, it's a big commitment to just bid on one, right? Yeah, it's an it's a huge undertaking. I think that what people don't understand is you have to thread a lot of needles for the right year, and that's both. What we have, Leonard Hoops and his team has done a great job of booking conventions out many years in advance. So we don't always have the hotel rooms or the space. And that's not a bad thing. It's because we're busy. So you've got to you've got to thread what we can do along with new stadiums coming online in the NFL. There's a new stadium being built in Nashville and one in Buffalo and all these things coming online, just like our new stadium was rewarded with a Super Bowl. Those new stadiums get rewarded. And then 
you want to be in warm weather and cold weather. And you you put all those things together and there's not five times a decade that we could host it. And so I certainly think we will again. I think, I hope we do again. I hope I get to be part of it if we do. And that's my personal opinion. Yep. Well, you mentioned uh, political conventions. So it was, as I was doing some prep work here, was it not long after Super Bowl in 2012, you were leading uh, efforts at the GOP convention? Was that in Tampa? It was. Yeah, I was standing wow. in, her, in a hurricane in Tampa. <laughs> wow. What was <laughs> that Talk like? about going from a great event to a really hard event. That was <laughs> yeah. 2012. Yeah. 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 Politics, a big part of Mel Rain's uh, resume. We'll talk about that and a lot more with this South Bend, Indiana native when the Business and Beyond podcast returns. Stay with us. At PNC Bank, we're committed to making a difference in the lives of our customers and communities by helping them move forward financially. As a Main Street Bank, we try to do right by our customers with every encounter. Our local teams offer personalized financial advice to help guide you in making the best decision. We're proud to be part of your community. PNC Bank. See how we can make a difference for you at PNC.com. Copyright 2022, the PNC Financial Services Group Bank, all rights reserved. Welcome back to the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. My guest this week, Mel Raines, the President and Chief Operating Officer of Pacer Sports and Entertainment. And Mel, we talked uh, a lot about some of the really big projects that you have been involved with uh, sports-wise in your in your career. Uh, politics, a big a big part of your your resume as well. But to go back even further, you are a native Hoosier, right? Grew up in South Bend. What was growing up in South Bend like for Mel Raines? It was cold, Gary. It was very cold. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I remember the blizzard of 78 well. We were home for a week. Um, yep. It was, you know, it was a great place to grow up. I, I feel like I grew up in a college, small college town in a lot of ways with Notre Dame there. And I'm a big, a big fan of of the university, even, even though I did not go there and went to IU Bloomington. It was a great small town to grow up in. Um, my parents are both from there. My sister still lives there, so I go back often. It's the perfect distance. I live close to downtown. I live on the near east side here, so no one's showing up for dinner unexpectedly, but you can <laughs> go up there if you need to for a day or a quick overnight, which is also nice. Right, right. What really occupied your time? Was it sports, academics, arts? What what what'd you like to do? Yeah. In high school, I would say I was not the most academically focused uh, person at Mishawaka Marion High School, but um, I played every sport you could imagine from softball and tennis and, of course, basketball to um, soccer and uh, would have loved to have played soccer in college, actually. But when I was starting college, that wasn't a varsity sport. So I played wow. club at IU for a couple of years, but I was yeah. pre pre that being something you could play. And I worked at Notre Dame in high school. They at Corby Hall is where the priests and the monks lived. And so uh, myself and some of my friends served them dinner. Family style was a great job. It was like five to seven thirty. They fed you dinner. It was a good wage. Um, it was easy work and you could still make your sports practices and get your homework done. It was kind of the perfect job. So I don't know that we even locked our front door, you know, yeah, on our block. Yeah. It was one of those kind of existences. So as you mentioned, you went to IU. Did you think about going anywhere anywhere else? Was it always going to be IU or did you think about Notre Dame or some other other places? 
I didn't really think about Notre Dame. I don't know that Notre Dame would have wanted me, to be honest, with my <laughs> grades. But I did think about Tulane because my aunt, uh, my dad's sister, lived in New Orleans. We used to go there quite often to visit. And I thought, well, that would be an interesting place to go to college. I did what probably a lot of 17-year-olds did at the time, which is look at the long application for Tulane and the postcard for IU. And I filled out the postcard. My older sister was there. <laughs> I would visit her sometimes. I thought it was really fun. And that's where I ended up going. I did not give it too much thought, though, to be honest. What, what was your, what was your, what did you study? What did you major at an IU? Well, I started out studying in the business, thinking I would be getting a business degree, maybe accounting. But I switched my major to telecommunications when I found out you had to take a public speaking course. And I was terrified of public speaking, which is incredibly ironic with yeah. what I have gone on to do. So I changed my major and I was a telecom advertising major and I've never worked a day in that in my life. And I've That's never true. taken a political science course. I don't tell anyone I've worked for in <laughs> politics that. Well, well, politics is such a big part of your background, but it's something that you kind of fell into, right? It truly is. Yeah. I um, I studied in London um, between junior and senior year. I got back to IU and I just wanted to be in a bigger city. I applied to a D.C. IUDC program. I was not in the SPIA school, but they accepted me and I just love DC. So I was, I interned at the National Association of Broadcasters, but my roommate was interning on Capitol Hill and I applied to Senator Dan Coates' office to be an intern after I graduated for the summer and see if I could find a job. And I loved it and wound up getting hired there by, I think it was August of after I graduated and started out answering the phones and giving capital tours. And Dan Coates had to be a great guy to, to work for. He, he uh, yeah. to me, one of the most genuine people I've ever met in my life. He really is. And he's just a statesman at a time when we need, I feel like, more statesmen in Washington and incredibly patient with you know a young staff. When you're a senator on Capitol Hill, your staff tends to be on the young side and you think you know everything, but you most certainly do not. So I'm, I, I'm grateful. I worked there almost five years and it was a great place to cut your teeth in D.C., you know, caring people, not sharp elbows. Um, I found that later in my career, but I'm really glad I started out there. And, and among your duties, I think at that time, you answered phones during the uh, Clarence Thomas Supreme Court confirmation hearings, right? Which which must have been quite an education in and of itself. It was, and I, nobody really expected what was going to happen. I remember it was an it was October of. 1991, I believe. And um, we went in and and the phone system for the Senate kept going down. So it was obviously happening quickly. There was no email at the time. So you would have to write a letter to Capitol Hill and someone would have to open it and count it. And so people weren't taking the time to do that. People were calling. A lot of the things people would call about would be fairly straightforward. You know, don't raise my taxes. Here's yeah. my name and address. And it wasn't emotional. This was very emotional. This was people who you know, women who had had terrible situations in the workplace and men who felt they had been wrongly accused. And it was hundreds of calls and the the phones never stopped ringing. And I was out there, I don't know, after five or six days of this, and I just started crying at, at my desk, which which was rare in my career. And our chief of staff happened to walk in and he said, get up for a minute and just do a couple laps and answer the phones. And he was just like, I'm so sorry. You know, mm -hmm. I, I mean, but what do you, it's your job. What are you going to do? You got to do your job. But I remember Senator Coates came out and took a couple calls himself and wanted to know what people were saying. And yeah, it was it was really quite a way to cut your teeth in a new yeah. job. Yeah, yeah. After uh, some time in public service, you went into the private sector, right? And lived in New York for a while. What was what was that experience like? 
I did. I, I worked for Philip Morris companies uh, in New York and DC. Unfortunately, I lived there on September 11th, wow. uh, 2001. So that was a tough time, obviously, to be living in New York, but um, also a time where you felt like you could contribute and give back and try to be helpful and as much as you could. Uh, I ran the New York City Marathon that year. And that oh, was wow. yeah. just, you know, t- to this day, something that brings, you know, great pride that the city turned out the way they did that year for those of us who ran. All of that was great. And, and no one ever asked me about my time working for Philip Morris, but it was really what what taught me to be the professional that I am. Political jobs don't really take a lot of time to invest in their people. And Philip Morris did. I had I was a hypo. I had great training in management and leadership and interviewing skills and how to write a business plan and all these other amazing things. I don't know that I appreciated it at the time, but then in other jobs, I've fallen back on those skills so many times. I really do appreciate it now. What was, um, and we just uh, celebrated the an- another anniversary of 9-11. So you were there. What what was your experience like uh, around 9-11? Um, I lived, lived in Manhattan and I worked by Grand Central Station. So that day we went in like a normal day. I was on my way to a meeting when um, the first plane hit and um, we sort of stopped in a conference room to see what was going on. And standing there when the second plane hit and realized immediately what was happening. You know, I'm standing in a tall building in Manhattan and planes are flying into tall buildings in Manhattan. So that's not a great place to be. They sheltered us in place, which was the protocol at the time until the afternoon. And I walked home with a couple of colleagues who lived in in Long Island and couldn't get home. So they stayed with me overnight. And I just, I remember walking home with them and just seeing people caked in dust. The people that you see now on the documentaries were walking around and just still in shock several, six hours later. And just that whole week was surreal. You know, you were home, you didn't have cell phones like you do today. Our landlines went down in Manhattan. People don't know that. So no one could call. I had like a hundred voicemails when it finally went back up and you would, all you heard were F 14s or 18s or whatever flying over and nothing else. And it was just a really, you felt like you were in a really bad movie, but you weren't, it was your, you know, it was your existence, but also is why when I got the call about going to the white house five years later, I left a really great job and opportunity to do to support, you know, an administration that I thought was doing the right thing. Yeah. Well, talk about that. You got the call from uh, the George W. Bush administration to be assistant to uh, Vice uh, Vice President Dick Cheney for political affairs. I know I read a little bit. What was the interview process, the interviewing process like? Because it was showing up at the West Wing, right? And uh, yeah. it was maybe th- pre- a little yeah. intimidating. You're pretty well vetted by the time you get there. But I do remember walking in for the final interview. I'd interviewed with his chief of staff and his ed- head of administration. And they knew about, you know, they had sort of figured out who they wanted. I think I was, tr- I don't know that they interviewed a lot of people. And so in my last chat with them, they said, if you're offered the job, will you, would you take it? And so we talked that through and I said, you know, they're not going to put anyone in front of him who's not going to do that. And I said, I think I, yes, I would take it. So you walk into the, the, the door where the Marine guard is standing outside and you walk in and the, um, there's a, there was a woman there. It could be a woman or a man, but um, her title is receptionist of the United States. So Rotus. So you get greeted by Rotus and you sit there and you're, I just remember thinking, you know, how did a girl from South Bend, Indiana wind up sitting on this sofa today? And then we had a pretty brief chat. Senator Coates, chief of staff, when I worked for him, was Dick Cheney's best friend from high school. So it was a pretty easy conversation. I think they called me about the job because um, Dave had recommended me strongly. Um, I think what he told me, he said to the vice president was, 
um, she would be great at the job, but you'll never get her to take it. So I think it became a bit of a challenge for them. And so we talked about Dave and he talked about his expectations. And one of his ex- expectations was, um, we are here to support uh, President Bush and his priorities. And you need to be in lockstep with your counterpart on his side. And we aren't running for anything else here besides the good of the administration, which is a little different from normal president, vice president relationships. And, you know, so I took that to heart. He was very clear about what my marching orders were. And I found him to be a great boss and very easy to work for. And he loved my topic. He was a political guy at heart. He loved to talk polling, the races that year. And we traveled, I think I did 120 trips with him and wow. it just in like nine months. I mean, he was willing to go raise money and try to help whoever he could that cycle. And um, it was a great experience, but man, were the hours long. Oh, yeah, I'll bet. What was, I, give people an idea of, of the grind that that, that job, uh, that job was. I mean, you just know. Most people last two years because it is a grind. And I think that's about right. You need fresh people in there um, who are ready to tackle big challenges. But I didn't know what rush hour in DC was then because I was in well before rush hour. I had, I would walk into seven or eight newspapers on my desk. I had five TVs in my office. Um, so you were constantly following, tracking the news. And then, you know, there were briefing meetings all day, starting with Carl Rove and going to, president's political director and kind of, so you're keeping up on kind of all the moving parts. There's constant press um, working with our communications director. And you just felt like you were, you know, just on a treadmill all day. And then if you weren't traveling and then home, you know, sort of late, late at night is when you could kind of catch up on your work a little bit again. But everyone who's there is, you know, became your best friends and you're all in it together. There's certainly a team mentality, like most of the jobs I've had. And, um, and I have an appreciation. I was, I didn't understand it before I went there, but anybody who's doing that, and I don't care what party you're with, they're doing really hard work at not a lot of money. And they're doing it because they think they're doing the right thing for the country and generally in it for the right reasons. I certainly felt that way about President Obama's administration and his staff. Um, I'll probably skip an administration, but I certainly think that about the Biden administration and, and those folks too. I, I know they're, I know they are truly doing what they think is the right thing to do as we were. And there's no roadmap and there's no safety net. It's, yeah. it's, it's tough work. Yeah. Politics and sports would seem to be miles apart, but is there a, is there a, a common theme between your, your roles in pol- politics and sports that, that you, you see? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's really similar. It's more similar than you think. When you work for Dan Coats, or I also worked for Susan Brooks when she was in Congress, mm-hmm. and Dick Cheney, you're really working for them and their families. And as a matter of fact, I met with uh, Susan's husband before I was offered the job. I mean, they knew how much I would be interacting with the family, and she wanted him to be comfortable with me as well, which I which I thought was smart. And I work for this Herb Simon and Steve Simon and the Simon family now, Rachel and Sarah and all of the the family. And and so it's a small family business. We're an, an, certainly an NBA team, but this is a small family business that's incredibly invested in our community and our state. And that to me feels very much like the public service in some ways. It's a business, certainly, yep. but we don't always look at things like a normal business would. We often look at things like somebody in public service would about doing, whether that's opening the doors for a, an officer's funeral, you know, moving whatever we may have had booked and making sure that we can accommodate that and and pay for all the bills of that without asking questions. We do that on a regular basis because it's the right thing to do. So the next um, 
however many months it is to the All-Star game. I know you've got a lot on your plate. What's the next six months or so going to be like for for Mel Raines, All-Star-wise and maybe other projects you have uh, on the uh, on the agenda? So it's 156 days from today because we talked about that this morning. Uh, and our season tips off in a little over a month. So um, I'm not going to be making a lot of personal plans, I think, in the evenings. I have a Pilates date every Saturday morning. I try to keep that. Um, so I keep saying, but this is really every season when you sort of dig in and know you've got 41 home games. And and the good news for us is we're I think we're going to have a record concert year. So we're incredibly busy on the event side as well. And we're hosting March March Madness first and second rounds after the All-Star game. So great. Uh, I've run five marathons and this is where you, you know, one mile at a time. So sometimes it's one day, one week at a time. You just sort of dig in to get through it. And uh, my friends are pretty good about sometimes food deliveries or other things when I yeah. need help. But this is just work time. You just got to put your head down and get it done. And Mel Range has been getting it done uh, for some time now. And that's uh, been great news for Indianapolis and Indiana as well. Mel Range, the president, chief operating officer of Pacer Sports and Entertainment. Mel, thanks so much. It's been a great, uh, great chatting with you, getting caught up with you, learning a little bit more about you and all the great things you do. Well, thanks, Gary, for all you do for our community, too, and uh, to spread the good word about what what a great state we are to do business in. All right. Mel Raines, president and COO of Pacer Sports and Entertainment. And thank you for joining us on this edition, this episode of the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. It's a weekly conversation with achievers in business, sports, entertainment and beyond. And you can download all of our episodes and get Indiana Business News 24-7. All you have to do is go to InsideIndianaBusiness.com. I'm Gary Dick. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.